Good morning. And let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Father in heaven, we count it such a privilege to call you our Father, and we thank you so much for your character of love, your methods, principles, the truth that you've revealed to us for Jesus and the Spirit. We ask that your Spirit will be with us today, enlighten our minds, draw us into unity with you. In your holy name we pray, amen. Amen. We're starting a new study guide, new quarter, and the uh, quarterly is Oneness in Christ. And before we actually get into the lesson... I wanted to share with you that last weekend I had the privilege of speaking at the Crossroads Community Church in Georgetown, Delaware. It was a fantastic experience. Uh, there was a, uh, I want to tell you a little about that church. That church started out about 10 years ago uh, meeting in an old auto parts store <laughs> with about 100 people. And very quickly they became, they, they grew so much that in that little auto parts store they had to have four services to fulfill the demand. And so they bought property out in the middle of a big farm field and they built a huge facility that we were at. At currently their, their auditorium holds 800 people and now they have so many people that they have to have four services every weekend, one on Saturday and three on Sunday in order to accommodate the the crowds. Uh, All week long, they are so busy that every day of the week, the church is busy and the facility is busy with all types of community activities happening at their facility. And their focus is on healing the hearts of people to love God, to love others, and to serve others. The senior pastor told me that uh, sometimes they get visitors that come and they'll ask for their doctrinal statement. What's your doctrinal statement? And the answer for the for this community church is the Bible. <laughs> that's their that's their answer, which has resulted in some of the visitors getting upset, not being a more precise doctrinal statement. But but I immediately when he said that, in my mind jumped a quote from Ellen White, who was one of the founders of the Seventh Day Adventist Church. She wrote this in 1885. You can find it in the Review and Herald, December 15, 1885. She wrote this: "The Bible and the Bible alone." is to be our creed, the sole bond of union. All who bow to this holy word will be in harmony. Our own views and ideas must not control our efforts. Man is fallible, but God's word is infallible. Instead of wrangling with one another, let men exalt the Lord. Let us meet all opposition as did our master, saying, It is written, let us lift up the banner on which is inscribed the Bible, our rule of faith and discipline. So I was so impressed with this that this group had put this principle into practice. And you know, uh, our church, when she was alive, had this in practice. Is this our practice today for the Seventh-day Adventist Church? No, we have the 28 fundamental beliefs. And what's if you look up in the, in the dictionary, there's another word that means fundamental beliefs. You know what that word is? Creed. Creed. Do we have creeds? But the Bible is to be our creed. And so you see the problem when you actually start listing a set of 28. What happens when you list a set of 28? What happens? Do you continue to expand through the whole Bible? Or does your view of the Bible now get narrowed through the 28? We study the Bible through the lens of the 28 and are restricted in some ways. It becomes a hedge that hedges us in. Potentially. Anyway few points from the Crossroads Community Church website. At the Crossroads Community Church, we believe the issue is always the heart. 
We are a church body created to share the love of Jesus Christ. Our heart's desire is to grow, serve, and spread the word of God. Crossroads Community Church, a nonprofit corporation, uh, is established to provide a place of worship and fellowship with our Heavenly Father and fellow Christians. It is our responsibility and privilege to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ by all available means, both at home and foreign lands. Visit us. When you visit Crossroads Community Church, we are not expecting anything from you. We, as a church body, welcome all to our congregation. We understand we have a style of how we run our church, and we understand that this style is not for everyone. We believe that Jesus Christ has enabled us to enter heaven, and we rejoice in that. When you visit Crossroads Community Church, you are welcome to sit or stand as we sing. You are welcome to clap or listen. You are welcome to wear jeans or a suit. Do whatever is comfortable for you. We simply ask that your actions not impede others who are worshiping. Did you notice the principle they described there? The law of liberty. Respect for other people. Wow, we're talking about unity in the church this week. That's, that's the, this quarter, oneness in Christ. How has this church grown? Like, how did it get big so fast? By practicing this principle of service and love and focusing on heart change rather than focusing on doctrinal conformity. So not, not evangelistic meetings or anything? No, no. They just did community service. And people invited people who invited people, and that's how they grew. Be good from us falling into these beliefs that our creed looks like. You know, we can tell other folks, hey, we, we fall in the same trap. It's like when Israel got a king. It, you know, maybe has just one king and it should have stopped, and or if he had been a more godly king, we would have seen a difference. They had to say, you know, the short overall, their kings were not much more godly. But, you know, if we can say we made a mistake, so we're not pointing fingers at them, we're putting a hand to, hey, help us get out our problems. So it may be a bridge builder potentially. I like that. Always looking to, to, to build those bridges. So and I read in the book, The Great Controversy, this week about Wycliffe. And, uh, and I read the following. You know who Wycliffe was? Started really the, the first great reformer, starting the Great Reformation. It says, the great movement that Wycliffe inaugurated, which was to, be, which was to liberate the conscience and the intellect. Did you hear that? I love that. Both your conscience and your right to think. Right, exactly. And set free the nation so long bound to the triumphal car of Rome had its spring in the Bible. Here was the source of that stream of blessing, which, like the water of life, has flowed down the ages since the 14th century. Wycliffe accepted the Holy Scriptures with implicit faith as the inspired revelation of God's will, a sufficient rule of faith and practice. Now notice the, 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 where Wycliffe has described his biases and what he had to struggle through. He had been educated to regard the Church of Rome as the divine, infallible authority and to accept with unquestioning reverence the established teachings and customs of a thousand years. But he turned away from all of these to listen to God's holy word. Notice the bias he had to challenge himself with. This was the authority which he urged the people to acknowledge. Instead of the church speaking through the Pope, he declared the only true authority to be the voice of God speaking through his word. And he taught that only that the Bible is the perfect revelation of God's will. Excuse me. He taught not only that the Bible is the perfect revelation of God's will, but that the Holy Spirit is its only interpreter. 
and that every man is by the study of its teaching to learn his duty for himself. Thus he turned the minds of men from the Pope and the Church of Rome to the Word of God. Now, is this principle still applicable today? Yes or no? Should we turn the minds of people away from the church authority, church dogma, church creeds, and to the Bible? Should we do that? Does this apply only to the Roman church or to any church? Ooh, do you guys realize how heretical you are? Seriously, if if this was 600 years ago, you would be burned at the stake for saying that. You would be. Jerome, Haas, and many of the reformers who've taught the same principle were burned at the stake for teaching people should view the word of God as authority over the church, uh, rulers and councils. We are in a struggle in this organization right now on this same principle. There are movements afoot to get people to surrender their thinking to church organizational authority rather than the scripture. And don't we have our own big, less violent version of the stake today? Yes. Don't we? Have a less violent version. We don't burn people at the stake, but we crucify them in other ways. Character in other ways. Uh, If we take the position... No, I'm going to ask you this because we're talking about oneness in Christ. If we take the position and promote the Bible as our rule of authority and turn people away from church, councils, creeds, traditions, and back to the Bible, are we uniting or are we dividing? Dividing. Like bone and marrow. The Word of God, sharper than a two-edged sword. Well, we're doing both. We are uniting. But we're se- separating from things of the world and bringing into the kingdom of God. That's what we're doing. As we talk about unity this quarter, consider what unity actually means. The introduction to the study guide points out fundamental belief number 14 of the SDA church, which states in part, in Christ we are a new creation. Distinctions of race, culture, learning, and nationality and differences between high and low, rich and poor, male and female, must not be divisive among, among us. What about denominational divisions? Can we be united in Christ and be from different denominations? Yes. What types of differences do not cause division to Christian unity? And what types of differences do cause division Christian unity. Any thoughts? Anybody want to throw out an idea on that? When Paul says we're not to wrestle with each other, which we tend to do, whether it's what kind of sports team or car or politics or their current understanding of God, we tend to debate instead of dialogue. You know, and I propose God wants to be win-win, three wins: win for Him, win for them, win for us. And we'll do the Matthew eighteen, Matthew five thing, and some people say, "Well." I'm not sure about it, but let's keep the discussion going. It can, if we have different ideas, we can be kind and caring. And with time, I may absorb some of their ideas. They may absorb some of my ideas. So, the answer to the question, what kinds of differences cause division in Christianity? What kind of differences do not cause division in Christianity? The big thing is probably pride. You know, because there's a pride. If I'm not willing to admit I'm wrong in anything, 
And I'm not Jesus. And you look in the mirror and, and realize I'm not Jesus. If we're united in pride, then we're okay. We're both proudful, then we'll have unity. Pride is not a divider as long as we're all proud. Right. <laughs> so the question is, what kind of differences cause division? So if you're healthy, you realize that pride's going to cause a fall. And I say, hey, I don't want to, I don't want to hurt you. I'm you don't want to hurt me. But anyhow, if we speak the truth in love, then the Matthew 18, Matthew 5 thing, potentially there's growth. And it may back and forth. And did Jesus speak truth in love? Always. Yes. And, and did he have unity with his church of his day? No. no. Some. True church came out. Did he have unity? Was he accepted? Was he loved? Or, or was he rejected and crucified? Well, Joseph came out. Some came out. Nicodemus came out. So some came out. Some didn't. And that's okay. And they, they did not do well. I'm not, not disagreeing with you. Go ahead. I found that my new job, I just switched jobs, and I found that the minute they found out comments that they have, and it was like, oh, you don't eat this, you don't do this. Or, and I had to say it, I am a Seventh-day Adventist, but I don't believe that just the Seventh-day Adventists are saved. So I treat you as a Christian, I believe all Christians that follow Jesus will be saved. So to disarm the situation, it helped. That's to unite. So you felt that the reaction when people heard you were Seventh-day Adventist was that they felt like perhaps they were being judged if they didn't live by your standard. Yeah. And you disarmed them by saying, it's not my standard. It's, it's, it's all those who love God in heart are going to be saved. Okay. Yes. It seems to me that usually the people that get upset or frustrated are the ones that feel like they're going to lose power or authority. If there's no power or authority and we're all just people on a journey, there's usually not that kind of tension or anger. The anger happens when someone feels like they're losing a position. Oh, I like where you're going with that. That, that can really be unpacked. Uh, Russell? Differences in methodology. Okay. They, they can either unite or divide. We can be threatening and coercive or flattering uh, with our methodology, or we can, as Dr. Graves said, we can present the truth and love and leave people free to come to their own conclusions. So I like where you're going with that. Think about methods versus definitions of doctrines. Are they necessarily the same? No. Can two people hold different understandings of various doctrines and still be united in Christ because they practice the principles of love, respect for other people, uh, respect for freedom of conscience, but they maybe get their kids baptized in different ways? Absolutely. Yes, Wendell. We can be upset and angry and revolted by ill. By what? Ill. What, what do you mean by ill? If, if you okay. see something that is destroying a friend, if you see them hanging on to something that is destroying them... Okay, okay so illness. Thank you for clarifying that. Okay. Yeah. You know, and so sometimes we get upset at what something is doing to people we love. And so how does that relate to the question, what types of differences do not divide in Christianity, and what type of differences do? If we see something that is destroying someone, and we love them, then true, that may be a divisive thing. What's the divisive thing? Truth. I like where you're going, but I like... If we have close friends who believe with eternal hell or once saved, always saved, or God picked some but didn't, he picked one of my twins but not both my twins, you know, that belief, maybe they won't be saved, it's going to hamper their witness, they may be lost, especially for the prodigal 
made to lose the older brother and the prodigal. They're twin brothers and they both go different ways if they believe things aren't true. So I think we can... You know, they will know... We can if we attack. What's, what's just the fruit of this doctrine? And it may take them a while to come around and they may die before they accept the truth, but they'll still be saved. But some of their kids and grandkids who never let go of those things may walk away from that picture of God that grandpa or mom thought. So, so I think sometimes we, the ideas can be toxic. When Christ came, he said, I, I bring a sword. Yeah, and so a sword, not to do what? What was the sword for? What is the sword? Sword of truth to cut dysfunctional thinking, ties, processes, methods, cut selfishness out of the heart. Uh, to cut fear out of the heart. This is what he brought the truth to do, to cut the lies, distortions that lead to fear and selfishness. Yes. That can be perceived as being divisive. Yes. It can be. Yes. I think it's almost a trick question. As though there's this long list of differences that people can have that's not divisive. And I think all differences have great potential to be divisive. I just heard of some church members leaving their church arguing over whether canola oil should be used or not. (laughs) But whether we choose to let them be divisive or not is a um, relative thing depending on how you handle it. But then there's some bigger issues that are against larger principles like um, killing people um, or things like that versus whether someone believes that a spirit leaves its body and it has a consciousness and, or the other view that you know you have like the resurrection, those things don't necessarily have to divide people. So the question you've already answered, can two people hold different understandings of various doctrines and yet be united in Christ? And if so, it's not the doctrine that's uniting them. What is uniting them? Character, which is based on loving other people, respecting the freedom of other people, being honest of heart, being people of integrity, saying, hey, this is my current understanding of things. You have a different understanding of things. We're both finite beings. Um, You know what? One of us may be wrong. Both of us may be wrong. uh, But we know that these principles are not wrong. And so we allow for the differences in doctrinal understanding, but we're still united in loving each other and, and seeking to benefit and bless other people. Now, the corollary to that question. Can two people attest to the same doctrinal statements, creeds, whatever you want to call them, and yet be divided? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, this, you, you see this happening, and this is why there's so many divisions in Christianity, because they keep fracturing over the enforcement or the application or the exact definition and, or, or who's going to be in charge or how they're going to run the service or we have the, the children's story before or after the special music or, or, you know, do we have carpet in the church or not carpet in the church or what color the carpet is going to be in the church or, or whether we play the organ or use the piano and, and on and on the things go that cause division. They have nothing to do, right? Because why? Because they don't have character that loves. They have character that wants to control and their way is the right way and if you don't do the right way, you're in the highway. Okay, let's move on. So our lesson. In the introduction to the lesson, lesson states the church of God the church is God's family on earth, then asks, but what do we mean by the church? Who belongs to the church? The lesson mentions the local community of believers and the buildings in which people meet, but then states, 
The church is about people, not about buildings. The church is about people, not about buildings. And then it says, yet all these, denomin- all these definitions are incomplete. The church is the people of God all over the earth. And though Christ has faithful followers in various denominations, many of whom will in the final crisis join the remnant, this quarter we are going to focus on our church, the Seventh-day Adventist church, and what unity in Christ means for us. Before we get the specifics of the Seventh-day Adventist church, what do you think of this idea that people who are Christ faithful followers are somehow not yet part of the remnant? Notice it said, Christ has faithful followers in various denominations, many of whom will in the final crisis join the remnant. What do you think of this idea that these faithful followers are not part of the remnant already? What would constitute being part of the remnant? A.W. Tozer, many of you have heard of A.W. Tozer, wrote the following regarding the remnant. I'll get a few quotes from Tozer. I am alarmed because it has been true since Pentecost that such a vast number of people who call themselves Christians, the overwhelming majority, are nominal, and only a remnant is saved. Or, there's always been a small remnant, and they have been in the midst of all the rest. A million might wish with their lips and worship with their lips, but only a small fragment truly worship in their hearts in a way that honors and pleases God. Where is the remnant? Where can we find them? As soon as we bring the subject up, immediately all the half-saved, the 1%, the backsliders, the borderline, the church members, the professors, and those who have no witness of the Spirit in their redemption begin to squirm and quote Scripture. And one Scripture they quote is... Judge not that ye be not judged. The man who belongs to the remnant is not asking if he belongs to the remnant. He is hoping and believing and trusting and seeking and longing and comparing himself not with somebody else but with the Savior. And one last quote. So the thing to do is not to look for the remnant. The thing to do is to be beware of presumption and self-righteousness and to compare yourself only to Jesus. Then you have done When you have done that, say, I am an unprofitable servant. What are your thoughts? Who are the remnant? Revelation 12, 17. You all know. Then the dragon was enraged and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring or the remnant who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Who constitutes the remnant? What are the qualifying features? They do not love their lives so much as well, well. Oh, I like that one. Okay. Yeah, but let's bring that back up. Uh, what does it mean to obey the commandments of God, and what does it mean to hold to the testimony of Jesus? What do you say to someone who says the following is what it means to obey the commandments of God? This is Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 39. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All law and prophets hang on these two. What would you say to someone that that's what it means to meet the first criteria? That the the remnant are those who obey the commandments of God, and the commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Have you heard some say... Well, that if you love God, love if you love somebody, you love by obeying. Which means you have to observe the seven-day Sabbath. 
Because you don't serve the seventh-day Sabbath, you're not obeying, therefore you're not loving the Lord your God with all your heart. What would you say? Have you ever heard, anybody heard that or is I just making stuff up? Have you heard that? What do you say to that? If that's true, that's how you can tell who loves God. Does that mean the Jews who put Christ on the cross and wanted him off before sunset so they could keep the Sabbath were loving God? That's how we tell, by keeping the Sabbath. Not by whether we crucify Christ. That, that doesn't matter. It's only whether we keep the right day of the week. That's how we tell whether we love God. What about the Pharisees who didn't want Jesus to heal people on Sabbath? They said there's six days in the week. Heal on the other days. Were they loving God? Were they part of the remnant? Why do you think Jesus healed chronic conditions? Remember, the one man had been paralytic for 38 years. 38 years he's been in this condition. This is not an acute, life-threatening circumstance. But yet Jesus specifically chose the Sabbath to heal him on. What message was he trying to say? What was he trying to get people to do and think? Associate salvation with healing. Associate salvation with healing and the Sabbath with healing, freedom, autonomy, love, not restriction, not enslavement, not imprisonment, not coercion. True worship. True worship. So if we're part of the remnant and we refuse to heal people on Sabbath in order to, in order to honor God, and I will tell you truthfully, I, I know of a group of physicians who wanted to open a free clinic in the inner city one Sabbath a month to serve the, the indigent people for the free clinic for health care on Sabbath. And certain organization, and they were Seventh-day Adventists, certain organization that was offering funding to them told them if they did it on the Sabbath, they'd pull their funding. And they brought in a person from the GC to review this and see whether this was authorized or not. And the person from the GC said, well, well, I can't find any sin in doing this on Sabbath. I would recommend that you don't do it on Sabbath. Yeah, did he give a reason? I mean, did he show logic to why this has you know, not been addressed or whatever? No, no clear logic, right? Is there- because it could be done any other day of the week. It could be done on Sunday or Monday or any other day. So why do it on Sabbath when it could be done on another day? Same argument you see the Pharisees given Jesus when he healed the chronic. That was the argument. So Sabbath is not a day for man in this methodology. Sabbath becomes a day that, that enslaves man. It's not made for man. We're now made for the Sabbath, see, in this view. Can a person be part of the remnant and not observe the Bible Sabbath? You guys are really heretical today. What about the second feature of the remnant? That they hold to the testimony of Jesus, or they have the testimony of Jesus. What does this mean? Some, maybe you've heard of this one, have suggested, based on Revelation 19, that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, that this means that the organization has somebody with the gift of prophecy in it. And if you see the gift of prophecy manifested in the organization, then that organization keeps the seven-day Sabbath, and that is the remnant, organizationally. That's what some people suggest. Do you think that's the best understanding? Actually, a better understanding of the Revelation 19 passage is not the, the um, testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, but a better understanding is the testimony of Jesus is the same that the spirit inspired the prophets to give. 
That's a better rendering. Jesus' testimony is the same testimony that the, that, that the Spirit inspired the prophets to give through the ages about God. And thus, those who love the Lord to God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, thus they keep the commandments of God, also give the same testimony about God that Jesus gave. They hold to Jesus' testimony. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is the testimony the remnant give. God works like this. God operates like this. These are God's methods. And thus they teach design law. But if you look at Jesus' teaching, he constantly taught through nature and examples of, of creation, God is the creator and his laws are the laws upon which reality operate. And he constantly sliced across this imperial law that Phariseeism had become locked into. And thus, those that are part of the remnant will teach, will love God and will love other people, and will teach the same truth about God and his design law that Jesus taught. Does being part of the remnant mean joining the right denomination? Can you be part of the remnant by joining a denomination? Yes. Or no. <laughs> Why do some people want denominational affiliation to be synonymous with being part of the remnant? Comfort, perhaps. I think it's a little more insidious than that, than just comfort. I think it's the same reason the Church of the Dark Ages wanted people to believe that you had to adhere to their rituals, their rules, their sacraments in order to be saved. It gives the organization power over people, keeps people afraid of organizational authority, reduces questioning and thinking, and increases organizational power base. That's the reason. You live in fear of disfellowship because you'll be out of the remnant. I remember hearing some years ago at a camp meeting... Uh, leader of a particular denominational church. Well, I'll just say it, the Seventh-day Adventist church. And he was, and he was, and he was, and he got up and said, I was, I was uh, in some foreign land. I'm not sure I remember the exact foreign land. And, uh, and I want you to know that the remnant in that land are doing well. And I leaned to my wife and I said, I wonder how the Adventist church is doing. <laughs> and, and that's a common idea. That they, that in many within the Seventh-day Adventist Church have the, uh, the, the, I think it's a false idea that membership in the organization makes you part of the remnant. That's just not true. Any more than being a Jew 2,000 years ago made you part of, you know, God's people. Many of them were clearly not. We'll come back to that in a moment. So it would be, would this be, uh, would you be comfortable with this? The remnant would be those who are like Christ in character. Thus the law is written on their hearts and minds, the law of love, and they give the same testimony about God, his character, his methods, and design laws, and principles that Jesus gave. Yes. Yes. Then if someone has the right day of worship, but has the wrong character, like those who crucified Christ, they would not be part of the remnant, would they? If someone has the right day of worship, but practices the methods of coercion and force, Top-down authority, threatening disfellowship if you don't adhere to the certain doctrinal principles, you know, compliance things. Would they be part of the remnant? Interesting. If someone has the right day of worship but misrepresents God as authoritarian and the inflictor of punishment, 
from whom we need to be protected by the blood of Christ, would they be part of the remnant? Are they given the testimony that Jesus gave? If someone has what you consider the wrong day of worship, but has a renewed heart to love God and others and gives of their life for others and say of God and his character what is right, would they be part of the remnant? I can tell you from my own experience traveling around speaking to groups all over the world of all various different denominations that when people genuinely love God and practice his methods and principles, there is a unity, even though there's a diversity of diet or day of worship or method of baptism, when they actually love God and love other people and would put themselves in harm's way to protect other people, there's a unity. There's a bond of brotherhood, of fellowship there. But when there's no love in the heart, when there, in fact, is a desire to require conformity, to coerce and pressure, to demand obedience in a certain line, there is never unity. Do you all agree with that? Now we can see the same principle of refusing to value truth and refusing to value love outside the church. Since I was here last, September 11, uh, 2018, Tucker Carlson reported on Fox News the following. This is what he said, and I'm going to just, and I've got the link in here for anyone to go watch it. But this is what he said. And don't get caught up in the specifics. I want you to see the, the process and then the lesson that Tucker drew from what happened. That's what I want you to notice. A tenured Brown professor called Lisa Littman found that teenagers who say they want to switch genders say that they are often influenced, not surprisingly, by friends and social media, like all young people are. The study was solid enough to be picked up by a reputable scientific journal. In fact, Brown's PR department sounded a press release promoting the study. But then activists descended. They were offended by the conclusions of the study, not because the conclusions were wrong, no one even argued they were wrong, but because the conclusions were ideologically inconvenient and therefore unacceptable. They demanded that the data be suppressed and remarkably Brown caved to their demands. The university yanked the press release and apologized for sending it in the first place. This is not really about Brown. This is what it looks like when reason itself dies. Politics trumps science. Empirical conclusions are banned. Acknowledging reality itself becomes a criminal act. Superstition reigns. The dark ages arrive. This is what they told you the Christian right wanted to do, and they were lying as soon as they did it themselves. It's not about gender issue, guys. So don't, get, don't get lost on that. It's about how people deal with differences of perspectives, opinions, how we handle facts and evidences, Can we reason and discourse, or do we allow mob rule, hysteria, emotionalism? Does what is politically correct overrule rational thought? And this type of repression of evidence, of reality itself being criminalized, of superstition reigning, happens on both sides, left and right, whenever error is defended and truth is rejected. It's not a left issue. It's not a right issue. 
It is when people don't value truth and instead value a certain ideology that is founded on distortion, falsehood, misunderstanding, and lies, and they don't want to progress in the truth, then these same principles get practiced. Is this evidence, what I just described here in the, in the news report, of what Scripture has warned will happen at the end of time? What does Scripture warn will happen at the end of time? People be reasonable, understanding, compassionate, uh, uh, open to evidence and truth, or dark, depraved, intolerant, coercive, abusive? Is this evidence of a beastly system at work? And can we see it if it doesn't manifest itself on a specific issue we've always been told it would manifest itself on? Can we still see it? Or can we only see it if it happens on one issue and one issue only. And that's where you have to come to principle-based thinking. Understand how God's design laws work. And when you understand his design laws, then you can see the beast wherever it raises its head. But if you can't, if you don't understand the, the principles, if you don't understand God's design law, then you look for the one little checkbox that you've been told to watch for. And if that checkbox doesn't get checked, then you can be hook, line, and sinker practicing the whole beastly system as you coerce everybody to keep your checkbox. And we see that process happening with certain authoritarian, coercive methods trying to become the, the rule of, of, of church law in this organization. Now we're about to start Sabbath lesson. <laughs> Which is creation and fall. In the memory text... And then God brought Abraham outside and said, Look toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said unto him, So, your dis- so shall your descendants be. And he believed in, in the Lord and he accounted to him for righteousness. So first question, who are the descendants referred to in this verse? Your descendants will be more numerous than the stars. Who are these descendants? The priesthood believers. The remnant that's standing on the sea of glass with an innumerable multitude. Okay. Priesthood believers, us, the remnant, you really are a really heretic group here today. But I, I, I agree with you. You know, what's typically taught that, that in many circles is it's genetic. But I want you to notice what Paul said, Romans 9, 6 through 8. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all those who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they Abraham's are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring we reckon. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. And in Jesus' interaction with the Jewish leadership of his day, they got upset and said, the, and this picks up the dialogue with them arguing that they are children of Abraham. And they said, Abraham is our father, they said. If Abraham, if you were Abraham's children, Jesus said, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your own father does. You are not, you, we are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. But I came from God, and now I'm here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, 
for there is no truth in him. So who are the descendants? You've already said it, but I want to be very clear on this. The descendants of Abraham are those who are like Abraham in character. They trust God and have a new heart and right spirit reproduced within them. So they're like Christ in character. Those are the descendants. And anything else is fraudulent. And this is hugely important because millions have missed this reality and think that something other than character transformation matters. Some think it's genetics that matter. Others think it's a legal adoption in a legal process in a court in heaven that you become legally declared to be part of the children of Abraham. It's all fraud. The only thing that makes you one of the descendants of Abraham is whether your heart has been renewed through trusting God and the indwelling of the Spirit to make you like Christ in character. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph. The clear message flowing out of the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2 is the, over, it is the overall harmony that existed in the end of the creation week. God's final words that all was very good refer not only to aesthetic beauty, but also to the absence of any element of evil or discord when God finished making this world and the humans who were to populate it. God's original purpose in creation included the harmonious coexistence and interdependent relationships of all life forms. It was a beautiful world created for the human family. All was to All was perfect and worthy of its creator. God's ideal and original purpose for the world was one of harmony, unity, and love. This is well said. Except one tree. <laughs> uh, no, that one tree, there was nothing wrong with the tree. The tree was fine. Seriously, and we have, we have comments to that fact. There was nothing wrong with the tree. There was no defect in the tree. There was no evil in the tree. The tree was fine. And valuable. Right. Okay? In fact, the tree was necessary. Why was the tree necessary? Because God loved them. Why was it necessary? Because God loved them. To restrict them, to restrict evil. One aspect, uh, because there was a rebellion in the universe, it restricted Satan's access to them to that one tree. That's true. He couldn't harass them. Imagine you could travel this whole planet and be free of all evil, all pain, all sickness, all sin, all temptation, all harassment, no demon forces anywhere. There's only one tree on the whole planet that they, they could come near, uh, that any evil could come near you. Imagine what a planet that would be like. So that's one, one element, but that's not the biggest element. That's the smaller element. There's a bigger element why this was an act of love to put it here. It was for their development of character. See, God can create sinless beings. God cannot create mature character. Character is what is developed by the exercise of the free will choices of the sentient being. And God wanted Adam and Eve to develop to the highest pinnacles of maturity, development, discernment, wisdom, uh, other-centered loving character, solidified in their personal experience and character of the reality of God's designs and methods. The only way they could do that would be to be confronted with an alternative, weigh out the issues for themselves, and choose to say no to the temptation and yes to God and his design. Thus, their character is developed. And solidified. So it was for their development also that it was permitted. That's part of it as well. Eve didn't even need to, to be there. She, she could have chosen 
And now I could have chosen otherwise. So. so the point being, I think the point I wanted to make is that this paragraph described, if you looked at it, the law of love. Other-centered. The whole purpose is include harmonious coexistence, the interdependent relationship of all life forms. The law of love. They recognize this was well said in this art in this paragraph. It was well said. The law of love in the paragraph. So, and, and things are revealed about God's nature, character, methods, kingdom, in the way he created planet Earth. How he originally constructed it. And the original building or constructing or creating of Adam and Eve. They were created in God's image. And what does it mean? How are they created in God's image? They were given intelligence. So intelligence is part of God's image, the ability to reason and think. They were given the freedom to make choices, which means they were given capacity to love, to self-sacrifice. They were given power to procreate, create beings in their own image. They were given power to create non-living things and create art, works of art, and create all kinds of things. And look at the world today. We are creators. We are. We love to build. We love to create. It's part of the image of God. Uh, They were given dominion. Uh, over the lower life forms to govern and rule over them, to protect them, to help them develop, to give of themselves for the, for the good of all of the life on planet Earth. They were created as co-equals to enter into genuine unity of love, bonding, and to fellowship together. The two shall become one as the, as the Godhead. They were given the ability to experience heartache and pain as well as joy and reward. The last paragraph says, God is love. And because humans can also love, and in ways, and in ways that the rest of the earthly creation certainly can't, to be created in his image must include the ability to love. Yet love can exist only in relationship with others. This is a very powerful and true statement. Back and this sort of ties in and you look at uh, Romans 9.27. Says, and Isaiah says about Israel, even if the number of the children of Israel was the sand of the seas, only a small part will be saved, will get salvation. And Illinois tells us that not one of Adam and Eve's kids need to be lost. So these people that are in different camps, whether it's outright Babylon or in some form of religion, but Sadducees, Pharisees, Sadducees, Pharisees, now those are brothers and sisters, and hopefully, you know, they will not rip off us and the cosmos and God by, you know, cooperating with the demon and 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 doing beastly things that are going to last, are going to work. And uh, so hopefully we can win those people back over to, the, to be in the room, those that are standing. So the lesson said, yet love can exist only in relationship with others. Think that through. There's huge functional operation. Do you believe this to be true? Okay, if this is true, there's operational and functional significance to this statement. Can love, li- can love exist in, in isolation? No. no. Therefore, God is love. God cannot be a singularity. Because there was a time in eternity past before God began creating where there was only God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Bible says, so God was not alone. Christ was with God in the beginning. There was a time, though, before there was any created being, and God was still love, which means that there was... God was not a singularity because it requires an outward movement or giving or beneficence for love to exist. 
It requires relationship. And the minimum number for other-centered love to exist is three, not two. Two, you can have narcissistic reinforcement. I see this in certain relationships, and many of you may have seen if you look around your community, where a couple get together and they fall in love and they're happy and they play together, they travel together, they golf together, they do this together, and they constantly adore each other and buy each other gifts, and they seem perfectly happy. It might go on for five years, ten years, and then the first child comes along. And the mother, typically the mother, will begin devoting her attentions and energies to the child. And when it's narcissistic reinforcement rather than genuine love, then the father becomes angry and jealous and critical and demanding, and the relationship begins to fracture and break down because it was never love. It was both worshiping, both relishing the worship they were getting from the other. And as soon as the attention wasn't all coming to the, to the husband anymore, he then becomes jealous and insecure and irritable and angry. Three is the minimum number where one can sacrifice for the other two. And so I think when you understand the operational nature of how love and other-centered love really works, then it just is a, a functional confidence you can have in the doctrine of the triune God, the Trinity God. Some dads do it right, though. Some dads do it. Some dads do it right. Yes, that's only, I said, narcissistic reinforcement. Then the next one, operational love requires relationship. Can you get love by threatening demanding, coercing, intimidating, and punishing somebody who doesn't love you. Can you get love that way? This is design law stuff, guys. And it's always testable, and it's always reproducible, and you always get the same consequence. If you do that, you always destroy love. Understanding this operational nature of love, then, many false doctrines in Christianity can be quickly eliminated, quickly gotten rid of. God cannot be saying, love me, or I will kill you. Amen. Can't be saying that. All such ideas are from Satan. That's right. But God can be saying, love me and let me heal you, because if you don't, you're going to die from your terminal condition. He can be saying that. But God cannot be presented as the source of inflicted torture and death and still be a God of love. Such ideas are lies. And they need to be rejected. And when you understand the, this, these truths, then you understand the insidious, destructive infection in Christianity known as penal substitution theology. Penal substitution theology is a lie. It puts God in the role of the inflictor of pain and suffering, the one who uses his power to torture people before he kills them. It undermines God's character of love, and it has prevented the remnant from taking the final message of mercy to the world, and God is waiting for the final remnant people to reject it and come back and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and sea. And we really need to have a a, a repentance where we tell God, we're so sorry we have presented you as the source of cosmic pain and suffering, the source of death. Well, there's so many good things in the lesson I wanted to share. We're, We're running down to our last five minutes. Um... What part do we go to? Monday's lesson, after the sin, the consequences of the fall, all nature groans under the weight of sin. We are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Many get confused about this, this, uh, this, this reality that we're born in sin, conceived in iniquity. And uh, in fact, I had a, a pastor come up and ask me this past weekend, you know, what do you say uh, about babies that die? Babies are, are guilty. Do they go to hell? 
or a baby's innocent and go to heaven. And I said, well, the Bible's really silent about where babies go. It doesn't really actually say anything about that. Yeah, but, but, but the question is, are they legally condemned? Are they born guilty and condemned because of sin? And do you see the, do you see the lens he's asking it through? So once you are under the false human imperial law lens, you will never get the right answers. You have to come back to design law. And I said, well, the Bible says we're born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We're born with a condition that we didn't choose. It's not our fault we're born with a condition, but even though it's not our fault, that condition requires remedy because without remedy, it's terminal. We're going to die. That's why we're dead in trespass and sin. We've got a terminal condition. We're not under legal combination, co- condemnation and guilt from the ruling authority who was required to inflict punishment. That's a lie. That's all false. But we have a condition that God sent Christ to cure for us and provide a free remedy for us. And, uh, you know, Oswald Chambers understood this and wrote in My Utmost First Highest, the Bible does not say that God punished the human race for one man's sin, but that the nature of sin, namely my claim to my right to myself, selfishness, entered the human race through one man. But it also says that another man, Jesus, took upon himself the sin of the human race and put it away. An infinitely more profound revelation. Sin is something I am born with and cannot touch. Only God touches sin through redemption. It is through the cross of Christ that God redeemed the entire human race from the possibility of damnation through the heredity of sin. God nowhere holds a person responsible for having the heredity of sin and does not condemn anyone because of it. Condemnation comes... When I realized that Jesus Christ came to deliver me from this heredity of sin, and yet I refused to let him do so. Remember the HIV-infected man and woman get together and have a baby born HIV-infected. Baby did nothing wrong, but the baby's born with a condition without remedy, which will result in its death. And if that child grows up to the age that they can understand, and they're offered a free remedy, while it's not their fault they have the condition, if they reject the remedy, it will be their fault for rejecting the remedy. And then I wanted to briefly touch on Wednesday's lesson. The lesson points out that Abraham was justified by faith. What does it mean and how do you explain it? And they, you know, the lesson talked about because he, um, as he believed in the Lord and he accounted him to be righteous, or they use Romans 4, 1 through 3, which says, what then shall we say of Abraham, our forefather, discovering that our forefather discovered in this matter. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Does that make it clear to you what justification by faith means? Or do the legal biases come through in this translation? So, does credited, when you hear it was credited to him make it sound like he got a credit for something he didn't actually possess. Like you get a credit card, and now you've got credit. You don't actually possess money. You don't have money. You've got credit, which is different, isn't it? Does it make it sound that way to you? He was credited to him. He got credit. Hmm. Well, that's because the translation probably isn't the best. A better translation, the Greek actually means accounted, or accounting, in the same way an accountant accounts. 
And so some will read like the, the Genesis one was accounted to him as righteousness. And how does an accountant account? Accountants only account what's actually there, accountant. There's an accountant. What's actually there? And that's what the Greek word actually means. So accountant will never account $5 in your checking account unless you actually have $5 in your checking account. So the, oh, and that's what the Greek word literally means. And so the only reason God accounted Abraham as righteous is because Abraham was actually set right, restored to rightness, restored to righteousness in his heart. He had righteousness in his heart. It was there in Abraham, which is the exact opposite of what they teach in the penal substitution theology lie. They teach that um, uh, justification by faith is when God declares you to be righteous, credits you, accounts you in a ledger in heaven somewhere righteous, even though you're not righteous. It's a fraud, and they make God out to be a liar, and it's wrong. And so it says in here, and you think, the natural condition of the human heart since Adam and Eve is, according to the Bible, enmity to God. Our natural heart, since we're born and sin and conceived, is to distrust God. But it says Abraham's heart trusted God, which means his heart changed from distrust to trust. That is a change of heart. And when he changed from distrust to trust, he opened his heart and the spirit came in and wrote in his heart the law of love and he was reborn and renewed and changed the inner man. And that's why God accounted him as righteous because he actually was righteous. It was no longer I that lived, but Christ lives in me. He had a new heart and right spirit. That's genuine justification by faith. An internal transformation of the person which goes right back to where we started this lesson. What does it mean to be a descendant of Abraham? It means a transformation of character, which comes only through the remedy of Jesus Christ, who wins us to trust, and then the Spirit takes the victory of Christ and reproduces it in us, and we get a new heart and right spirit. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the God of reality, the builder of creation, the designer of humanity, and that when Adam and Eve chose to break your design and change their internal state of being into fear and self-centeredness, you sent your son to restore and fix all the damage, to destroy the infection of fear and selfishness, to destroy death and bring life and immortality to light. We now ask that your spirit of truth and love will come to enlighten our minds, to win us over to complete trust, and to restore us to your perfection, that we might be your true descendants. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.